Hey everyone, today we're going to talk about Deleuze and Guattari's idea of the body without organs. Now I'm going to try and explain what, what that term means and how it fits within their general uh, project. And what I'm referring to here is their work in Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. So I want to say as a kind of disclaimer before jumping into it, I can't cover everything about this term because they it really ends up in some wacky territories. And for that reason, I just want to emphasize that there are going to be points that I won't cover that you can only really get if you go and read the books. Now, with that being said, I've also covered Anti-Oedipus in its entirety and some parts of A Thousand Plateaus on this channel. So you can go check those episodes out if you'd like. And if you'd like to help me in any way, you can find me on Patreon or PayPal, which would be great. Sharing, liking, subscribing, all of that helps a lot and it helps keep this going. And for those that aren't familiar, and if you're just jumping into this without knowing who I am, I try on this channel and on podcast form to explain texts. So that is, I don't give very entertaining, broad overviews. I try to remain as specific as I can and precise in my presentation of these ideas. And the reason for that is because I think it develops the most kind of, or it allows for the most kind of holistic approach to these texts rather than vague kind of summary type uh, introductions to them. Anything, anything more? Probably not. No, fine. Uh, body without organs. Let me try and explain what that is. So let me just read the definition that they give that will be very confusing, so I'm going to unpack it, but this is just, let's treat this as our point of departure, and we get this out of a thousand plateaus. They write, that the body without organs is a body upon which that which serves as organs is distributed according to crowd phenomena in Brownian motion in the form of molecular multiplicities. So what they mean by that is that the body without organs, for now, let's just imagine it like a sheet of paper, just for now. And if on that sheet of paper, I were to draw a bunch of little dots, all of these dots exist on a body without organs. That is, the paper didn't really have an identity until the dots were written on it, or words, for example, that give the piece of paper kind of an identity. Now, what he means by Brownian motion is he's referring, or they're referring to a kind of physical composition in which small uh, particles and atoms, and this is probably an image you've seen before, uh, exist in like a, a fluid state and they interact and bump into one another and it seems like a pretty chaotic arrangement where there are a bunch of little atoms just bouncing around they don't seem to follow any coherent pattern and it is in that state in in that plane what they'll come to call a kind of plane of consistency that these little atoms come to exist they exist upon the body without organs so this isn't to say that the body without organs opposes organs. That would, be, that would be very wrong to think that. The body without organs opposes the organization of organs in a very coded, specific way. So let's imagine a body. Take, I don't know, my body. I would be pretty liberated if I didn't have to attend to my organs, and my organs being things from my skin to you know, my lungs to my heart to my stomach, if I didn't have to appease these things, I would be pretty well free 
to do whatever I want, but I am to some extent grounded by them and they give me some kind of an identity because they determine how I can move and flow within the world. Now that doesn't mean that we're completely foreclosed to any possibility, but it does in a sense hinder that capacity. So imagine, you know, and again, this is only kind of the beginning of this, uh, <laughs> defining this term. Imagine it as being a site of possibility, you know, where you are not restricted by your organs. A body without organs is a place in which there is possibility or possibility is allowed. So the body without organs is in their words, unproductive and it is sterile. So it doesn't do anything on its own. In fact, it opposes certain actions. Now, it is something that because of its lack of functioning or its lack of production, is quite appealing to things that do produce, like organs, for example, organs that work to make connections with other organs, with other you know, parts of the body, for example, that all form a cohesive network. Now this network is made possible if there is a medium, the body without organs, that is yet unmarked, that it can, this network can impose itself upon. So it looks, or these um, organs, what will also be called partial objects or machines, desiring machines, look towards the body without organs as a site for their realization, for their ability to come into being. So they depend on the body without organs. They see the body without organs as a necessary zone for their realization. And when they implant themselves upon the body without organs, the body without organs then assumes a form. And this form is conducive to the specifics of the partial objects and the desiring machines that have imposed themselves upon it. So they describe this, they, they say we can only describe this in a kind of phenomenological way, where they can't actually outline what a body without organs is in itself, or what these partial objects or desiring machines are in themselves. Instead, they only seek to describe the way in which they operate on one another phenomenologically. That is how one determines and shapes the other and, and, and so on. So it attains its identity, not necessarily by what it is, because in many, in many ways, it actually opposes the very fabric of identity just because it is anti-productive. It then is, is kind of co-opted by various mechanisms in order to give it a kind of identity. So what does the body without organs think of these partial objects or these desiring machines scurrying in onto its domain? Well, let's venture a, a kind of real world example. Uh, let's imagine a, a cornfield. Now we see a cornfield and when we look at it, we see various crops and you know, they, they comprise the, the cornfield. They are pervasive. But before that, these crops emanated from seeds. And before that, what was required was a plot of land that had to serve as a template upon which the seeds could uh, fertilize and be fertilized and then grow into these crops. So let's imagine this empty land as a body without organs. And these seeds are the kind of organs that come into it and that the body without organs 
uh, kind of fertilizes in its hospitality. It nourishes these seeds, these partial objects that then grow into these crops. So the body without organs is absolutely fine on its own. In fact, it would actually prefer that in many cases because it doesn't actually want to become this cornfield because it ceases being what it is to itself and it becomes then what it is in relationship with these seeds that then grow into these crops that actually change the very fabric of that bo- of the body without organs, of that kind of plane of consistency that seduced these seeds to, in the first place. So the body without organs makes the best of a bad situation, and it appropriates these seeds for itself. That is, it sees itself capable of giving these seeds life, that is, being the plane of consistency upon these seeds can, can exist. So it then uses it for its own end, and that is to give it a kind of rupturous identity that can then sprout into the world in a kind of rhizomatic way, which is a term I'm not going to cover anymore here, uh, but is one that is very important in Deleuze and Guattari's work. So they say, as an example, above on top of the exam- my own example of this cornfield, that in the case of capitalism, the body without organs is capital itself whereas the desiring machine is the capitalist. So the capitalist sees in capital an un, kind of uninhabited terrain, one that it can creep its, tendrils, ten, creep its tendrils into, its tentacles, and co-opt for itself. But little does the capitalist know that capital, the body without organs in this case, has an agenda of its own. And that is because the body without organs, although it is a site um, that might appear to be neutral, it might even appear to be primordial, and that is certainly how my example might have communicated it in the case of like a neutral field, that body without organs is only ever considered a site of possibility in a specific setting. So capital, in their case being a body without organs, is only a body without organs in that setting. Capital doesn't exist anywhere else. Capital doesn't have the same meaning in any other place. So the body without organs, if I can just say this, is quite adaptive, and it'll change its form in different places. In A Thousand Plateaus, they give the example that, um, they give the example of a tree that the wolfman, not important, that the wolfman sits in as being a body without organs. It's a kind of site for the realization of something else that can exist upon it, and that in its own being serves only that purpose of existing almost for something else as a site for that thing, other thing's possibility. So because the body without organs is a place upon which things are inscribed, and they inscribe themselves, they say that it is a site of recording. It serves as a place, the place upon which not only do these things exist, but these things exert themselves in their own meaningful way as their own identities, where their identities then become inseparable from the site upon which they are formed, that is, the body without organs. So we might not ever factor the body without organs into our assessment of anything's given place in the world. Like, we don't look upon organs necessarily in their connection to a body, but nevertheless, any definition that we give or any kind of diagnosis that we give of an organ that exists in relation to a body without organs 
is only because of its relationship that we t- assume tacitly, that is, we assume without thinking it, as having that connection to this body without organs that gives it that possibility. And what happens here is that then the desiring machines that exist upon it and their connection to, to it, to the body without organs, then appear to take on a kind of objective status, as though that is the only way things are. So their commitment, that is Deleuze and Guattari's commitment to Marx, is very clear here, and we certainly get uh, various notes of commodity fetishism here, which is another key word that I'll eventually do. Uh, but for now, in Marx's words, what he, what he says about the commodity when it is fetishized is that it is detached from all previous its history, essentially, its history in production, and it appears as though a commodity attains its value almost by magic. It doesn't actually have value associated with the labor, but it just attains its uh, value from magic or from the kind of otherworldly sources. So the same can be said here of the body without organs and its relationship to the partial objects in that they assume to form a cohesive whole that is inseparable, when in fact they are very separable. And the implications for that are pretty great, and we'll get into that uh, in terms of capitalism and capitalism's appropriation of the body without organs for its own ends. But before getting into that, they use the body without organs to first problematize the idea of Oedipus and the Oedipus complex. So they set out this whole system of a body without organs that is comprised of all these little machines, all these little partial objects that meet and have their own agendas. And when these objects meet, they they form their own flows. That is, they form their own connections. These connections break apart and they form new connections and so on and so forth. So what they take from that is the idea that there is no kind of singular totalizing narrative to encompass all of this, which is what they see is happening in the Oedipus complex or in psychoanalysis that tries to subsume everything under the aegis of Oedipalization, where if you have a problem, it's because, you know, you had this improper relationship with your mother or your father or whatever. So it's very reductive for them. And they see that as foreclosing possibility because it totally disavows all of these other mechanisms that are going on that they see to be quite transformative and to present a great deal of possibility if they are harnessed, if they are used towards some benevolent end. Now, when these things come out, that is, when the relationship between partial objects or desiring machines and the body without organs attains a certain degree of equilibrium, and there's a certain harmony between the two, then we see a transformation into what is called celibate machines, which are... uh, sites of intensity that are produced in accordance with both the will, I guess, of the body without organs and that of the desiring machines. And these produce a very special kind of subject. So in all the other previous arrangements, any kind of association between a body without organs and a desiring machine would produce some some degree of subjectivity because it would come about in a certain way that would uh, allow for a certain flourishing of subjectivity in relation to that, that thing that would determine it to some extent. But with the emergence of these celibate machines, what we see is the existence or the emergence of the schizo, 
which is um, undoubtedly a problematic term, but also just a confusing one, uh, because it's it's unclear how much this actually resembles uh, schizophrenia, but without getting into that too much, they suggest that this is a schizo-subject, one that is not necessarily coded to the extent that they fear psychoanalysis wants to code subjects. So that's why they oppose it to schizoanalysis, to propose that schizoanalysis is the kind of analysis that will actually look at all of these connections between the body without organs and partial objects and desiring machines and how they relate to one another and how they can be transformative. So let's get into capitalism and capitalism's relationship with the body without organs. So in order to really explain this, we have to talk about the two broad phases that precede capitalism. I believe the first one is the barbaric regime, and the second one is the despotic regime. And then what follows that is the capitalist machine. Now, in the first machine, what you see is territorialization, where there's a connection to the land in some way, various rites and rituals and codes that mark a kind of um, concordance between people, identity, you know, culture, if we could say that that existed at the time. But then here comes along a despot, a ruler, a king, that says, um, hmm, I don't like all this stuff you got going on. I'm going to put it specifically under my kind of rule. And what they call that, that is what Deleuze and Guattari call that, is the act of overcoding. So the despot tries to overcode everything to make it according to their principles, which they can then understand and control. And we see with that a very heavy amount of, I guess, territorialization. There is a very heavy uh, coding and mapping of the world going on at that point. Now, what we see with capitalism is an undoing of that, a steady undoing of all these codes, but it doesn't completely undo everything because then we would see it collapse. Instead, Deleuze and Guattari say that it deterritorializes, so it, it decodes with one hand what it recodes or re-territorializes with the other. So what does this have to do with the body without organs? Well, the body without organs might appear to fit pretty well with the capitalist system, where it might appear as though capitalism is driving towards this thing called the body without organs, because the body without organs is not territorialized at all. But they say that no, that is not the case. In fact, capitalism maintains the body without organs at its limit. So it's like an asymptote, if anyone remembers, you know, their high school math days, the asymptote is um, a line that proceeds to infinity that a, um, that a function is not able to supersede or cross. It only approaches it ad infinitum. So the same can be said between capitalism and between the body without organs. Where capitalism seems to try and try and try to approach it, not because it necessarily wants to, but it seems to be approaching it, never to actually arrive there because capitalism still maintains various territories in order to keep itself stabilized and structured. Some examples might be the rise of like nationalism, uh, the rise of or the maintenance of things like religion, 
of very clearly marked out ideas about race and gender that ground people and keep them from totally exploding into a domain of endless possibility like the body without organs would allow. So within capitalism, what we see, because we're also seeing the production of the schizo, that's the schizophrenic for um, Deleuze and Guattari, that is the new proletariat for Deleuze and Guattari. They are the kind of subject that capitalism produces in its decoding. It produces this subject, which acts as its proletariat and, in their words, its exterminating angel. So this is very much in line with Marx's theory, where Marx thought that, the, that capitalism was going to bring about its own end, and that was in the form of the proletarian themselves, where the proletarian, a product of capitalism, was going to grow very dissatisfied with capitalism because of, you know, reduced uh, wages, reduced, you know, leisure at time, or increased alienation that all serve to make the proletarian upset. So Marx thought that then capitalism gave birth to the proletarian that would mark its demise. Deleuze and Guattari here are saying the same thing. The schizo subject is the person that comes out of capitalism, but that can also bring an end to it, where the schizo subject can push it, capitalism, into, past that asymptote, into the body without organs, where it will get rid of all these kind of burdensome territories, like the nation, religion, just to name a few. You know, you can, I'm sure you all have better examples than that. But these territories keep it grounded and that we see the emergence of various kind of fascist politics out of it. Now there's a risk here and they're very clear that we have to be careful if we're going to be conducting this kind of grand experiment. And that is because if it fails and every time capitalism approaches some kind of a demise, then it falls back upon, uh, you know, territories even stronger than it had before. And that's where you get the really strong nationalistic rises, where you see, you know, fascism emerging and all of these other kind of brutal systems come out of it. Now, someone with, who might be a little bit critical of that would say, well, you know, after 2008, the financial crisis, we didn't see fascism like we do now, right? So what does that mean? Because there hasn't been a big crisis since then. And I don't, I don't have an answer. I would love it if someone could give an answer to that uh, query, but anyways. So the body without organs presents a kind of democratic possibility where they say that humans upon the body without organs or these kind of schizo subjects shed their identities as far as their identities are determined by law, by structure, by codes. Yet they maintain their singularities, and it is upon the body without organs, this kind of free-floating space of this, these Brownian movements where things collide and bump into each other, form connections, disappear again, form other connections. It is on the space that we see the emergence or the allowance of new fruitful forms of kind of democratic engagement that might otherwise be impossible, which is why they are so hopeful for it. And it is also on this plane that we see this endless process of becoming, which is another key term for them, where you become animal or become nomad. And in this process, we see perpetual deaths occurring. 
where in our becoming something else, it must imply that we have lost what was previous to us, that we have lost who we were before, that that part of us has died, so that we can become something new. And it is here that we see, and then I want to close this up with, where they say that when the body without organs, if it has ever realized on a broad level, and it's not just appropriated by the capitalist machine, um, but it's something that is, I guess, appropriated for the sake of liberation, it is then that we will see kind of grand death. Because and this isn't like a negative death or like uh, the act of physically dying, but it will be the death of what we knew previously, which is where possibility comes from. And that is more or less it. Uh, there, there, well, less. There's a lot more to it than that. Definitely go and read Anti-Oedipus and A Thousand Plateaus. I think I did a fair job at just giving a kind of preliminary uh, you know, presentation of it here. Uh, but if I did anything wrong, I really want to welcome people adding stuff uh, because it's about, you know, we want to produce knowledge here and we want it to keep going. Uh, and with that, take care.